Today's reading is going to be out of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and it's going to be verses 1 through 17. should be on the screen behind me. We're going to be reading it in English and Spanish. I'll be doing it in the Spanish. Pablo will be doing it in English. Just kidding. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Okay. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Juan, capítulo 5, versículos 1 al 17. Después de esto, se celebraba una fiesta de los judíos, y Jesús subió a Jerusalén. Ahí en Jerusalén, junto a la puerta de las ovejas, un estanque que en hebreo se llamaba Betesda, que tiene cinco porticos, en esto estaba el suelo un, una multitud de enfermos, ciegos, cojos y paralíticos, que esperaban el movimiento del agua, porque un ángel del Señor descendía de vez en cuando al estanque y agitaba el agua. Y el primero que descendía al estanque después del movimiento del agua quedaba curado de cualquier enfermedad que tuviera. Estaba ahí un hombre que hacía 38 años que, te, que estaba enfermo, cuando Jesús lo vio acostado ahí, supo que ya llevaba mucho tiempo en aquella condición. Le dijo, ¿quieres ser sano? El enfermo le respondió, Señor, no tengo a nadie que me meta en el estanque cuando el agua está agitada. Y mientras llegó, otros baja, baja antes que yo. Jesús le dijo, levántate, toma tu camilla y anda. Al instante el hombre quedó sano y tomó su camilla y comenzó a andar. Pero aquel día era día de reposo. Por eso los judíos decían al que había sino, sido sanado, es día de reposo y no te es permitido cargar tu camilla. Pero él les respondió, el mismo que me sanó me dijo, toma tu camilla y anda. Le preguntaron, ¿quién es el hombre que te dijo, toma tu camilla y anda? Pero el que había sido sanado no sabía quién era, porque Jesús sin que se diera cuenta, se había apartado de la multitud que estaba en aquel lugar. Después de esto, Jesús lo halló en el templo y le dijo, mira, 
has sido sanado, no peques más para que no te suceda algo peor. El hombre se fue y dijo a los judíos que Jesús era el que lo había sido sanado. A causa de los judíos perseguían a Jesús porque hacía estas cosas en el día de reposo. Pero Jesús le respondió, hasta ahora mi padre trabaja y yo también trabajo. La palabra de Dios. This is God's word, you may be seated. Well, last Sunday and today, we're looking at two of the miraculous healings that Jesus performs. And there's really a big contrast between the two. If you were here last week, or if not, uh, there's really a, a big contrast between the, the healing that happens at the end of chapter four and this healing at the beginning of chapter five. Last week, in the end of chapter four, we saw how a royal official came to Jesus in Galilee because his son was dying. Uh, he came, we saw last week, with a weak and a faulty faith. But he came out of desperation. And that desperation and that faith got Jesus' attention, a place where he wasn't really giving attention because the people weren't looking to him as this, their Savior and the Lord. He was kind of like, the, they said, hey, kind of do some cool miracles for us, but they weren't really believing in him. This man sought him out and believed in him. Even if it was weak faith, that weak faith got Jesus' attention. That man's son was healed, and he and his whole family believed or trusted in Jesus as the Christ, as their Savior. But, but today we're looking at the story that was just read. We're looking at a story that's, that's really opposite. We see a man who has been ill for a very long time, 38 years to be exact. And, and we see a man who, who doesn't approach Jesus with faith. In fact, he doesn't approach Jesus at all. Jesus approaches him. And when Jesus does, and Jesus' interactions with him, we see that this man who doesn't approach Jesus with, Jesus with faith, who's been sick for a long time, lame for a long time, we see that he doesn't really even have many endearing characteristics at all. He doesn't come across looking very good in our story. But here's the really cool thing that we're going to see today. And if we saw last week, that if we saw that if, if it's faith that gets the attention of Jesus, which is true, We're going to see this week, what does Jesus do with sinners? What does Jesus do with sinners? And this account has a lot to tell us about that. Let's look first at this man. Let's look at this man that's been waiting 38 years. He's been lame. We don't know why. And probably often, maybe not every day, but often he would be brought or he would somehow, somebody would get him to this pool at Bethesda. And there was a Uh, an account in that area that if, if, if you could wait and you could see the waters stirred in the pool of Bethesda, uh, the, the story went that that happened by angels. We don't really know. It's not in, necessarily in the account, but it came down in history to us. That if you saw the waters stirred by an angel, that the first person who got in that pool would be healed. Now, there must have been some validity to that because I don't think that we'd see crowds of invalids and the blind waiting around this pool for the waters to be stirred if it wasn't true to some extent. But whatever the case may be, this man had been coming here for years and years and days and days and waiting, and he hadn't seen anything happen. He was, this man was a helpless, miserable, dull, ungrateful 
invalid. He was a an helpless, miserable, dull, ungrateful, invalid sinner who Jesus somehow sees him and his heart is moved to him. Something about this man, something about this situation, Jesus sees him and the whole crowd of people who are waiting around this pool, who are all in need of healing, who are all in need of help. Jesus sees this one man and he approaches him and he helps him in a miraculous way, this man who is a helpless, miserable, dull, ungrateful, invalid sinner. We see, first of all, this man was an invalid. He was lame. And in this society, and really even today, but in this particular society, where there is so little safety net, so little help that could come to somebody in a situation like this, this man would be unable to contribute almost anything to his family. He would be absolutely and utterly helpless. Can you imagine being lame without help of of any of our modern things that we have? He's not able to contribute to his family. He's unable to help himself. He would feel forgotten. He would be unable to help his family. He would have no income to be able to support himself or his family. No job, no career, very little hope for him. How does he get around? In fact, we know that he couldn't get around enough that, so that somehow somebody brought him, would, would bring him to the side of this pool, but maybe they had to go work, they had to go do their things, and he would be stuck here. And so whenever he had seen in the past the water stirred, he couldn't even get himself into the water. That's how lame he was. No help, no income, no job or career, and he had endured this for 38 years. Can you imagine having no medical hope for 38 years, and being his only hope, the only hope in his life is this pool in Bethesda. His only hope is that he could get to this pool, somehow see the water stirred, and somehow get in these waters first to be the one who would be healed. Can you imagine what it would be like to be him and that sense of coming week after week, day after day, year after year, waiting hours and hours in that hot place, waiting to see the water stirred only to be disappointed yet again. Another day where he didn't see the water stirred. Another day where he didn't see the water stirred. Another day, another day, and then finally a glimmer of hope and somebody beats him in and he sees the person celebrating and excited because they're healed and yet he's still not. And he knows, he sees the writing on the wall, yet he still comes because his only hope, but he sees the writing on the wall day after day. I'm never going to be able to beat the first one in. Looking intently at the water, he, I'm sure he'll be coming up with it day by day, a week by week, a new plan. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I can get this. Maybe I'll, if somebody legs me close, I can roll in really quickly, only to be over and over again disappointed day after day, week after week, year after year. Can you imagine how deflated he would be? This one hope that he had, this only hope that he had, and he realized at some point it's impossible for him, as lame as he was, to be anybody into that pool. The man was an invalid, and he was helpless. He was totally and completely dependent upon others. And he tells Jesus when Jesus shows up, I don't have anybody else. He is dependent and helpless on others, and he doesn't have anybody to help him to get into that pool. No one, he doesn't have the, the wherewithal to hire somebody to do it. He doesn't have somebody who's able or willing to be there with him to get him in there. So what we see happen year after year if you're in that state? 
being an invalid, being helpless, wouldn't just be a condition that you're in, it'd be an identity that you claim. This is who I am. I'm a helpless invalid. Do you have a sense of helplessness about anything? Maybe you have an issue in your life. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's personal. Maybe it's health-related. Maybe it's some sort of habit or some sort of sin issue. You can't ever seem to get over it. You can't ever seem to get past it. You seem stuck day after day, year after year, decade after decade. I can't get myself out of this situation. A hope, a personality trait, a habit, a sin, something. You're miserable. You're helpless. This is the state of who you are, and it starts to creep into your mind and to the way that you act. This isn't just a condition I have. This is who I am. That's the situation this man was in. And can you imagine how miserable that would make him? Can you imagine his misery, his distress, his pain, his physical and mental pain that he would be in? I can imagine him trying to go to sleep at night after another hot, sweaty, long day of waiting by that pool. Yet another day of pain and disappointment to think, I must be the most miserable person in this whole city. Have you ever felt like that? Can you imagine what it'd be like for that man? He watches everybody sitting there, walking past. They're looking, they're smiling. They look like they have a place to go. They look busy, important. Maybe they're walking with somebody. They're going somewhere. They're doing things. He thinks everybody in the city is happy, is content, is busy, has value, has worth, except me. Do you ever feel that way? You don't have to be an invalid lying beside a pool to feel that way. You just see people around you at work, your friends, your family, people on social media. Everybody is happy. Everybody is content. Everybody is busy. Everybody is important. Everybody has things going on except me. You see everybody passing by, feeling miserable day by day, and thinking that you're the least of the least. They have it all. I have nothing. Maybe you don't look like that on the outside. And sometimes, look, it's it's worse to be an invalid, but sometimes that's an especially acute kind of pain. You play a good role, but you feel like an imposter. On the outside, you play the role, but you feel like an imposter inside because you're absolutely miserable. You feel stuck. Who is this man that Jesus takes notice of? It's a man that's deeply miserable in his life. Maybe that's you. But not only do we see this man as miserable and helpless and an invalid, but we see this man as kind of a dull kind of guy. He almost misses Jesus who comes up to him, basically taps him on the shoulder and gets his attention. He almost tries to miss Jesus. He's so focused on the water and the ripples, which haven't been able to help him yet, that he almost misses Jesus. And when Jesus does come up to him, he gives a dull, kind of dense response back to him. Because, see, Jesus was already pretty famous for healing people. No matter what people believed about him, no matter who they believed he was, Jesus was pretty famous in that region for healing people. He had already been in Jerusalem doing great deeds, doing great miracles and healing people. 
And now, here he is, the greatest, the most preeminent healer in the history of the world. He walks into this gathering of sick. He walks into this gathering of invalids. He walks into this place where they're waiting to see the water stirred by an angel. He walks into this place. He walks right into this man. And he, he, the most preeminent healer in the history of the world, says, do you want to be healed? Do you wish to be healed? And this man's response isn't about, what, about Jesus and his offer. He doesn't say, oh, you're the great Jesus who could heal me. His response is, we see he's, he's not really the brightest bulb. He's not the sharpest pencil in the box. Jesus picks this man, the most preeminent healer in the history of the world, and he says, do you wish to be healed? And his response isn't, are you going to heal me? His response is, I don't have anybody to get me in this pool. What a stupid question that is, whoever stranger you are. I don't have anybody to get me in this pool. I've been waiting here for decades. I don't have anybody to help me get in here. That's the problem. Of course I wish to be healed. I just have no means to get me there. I have no way to get in the water. How dull and dense this guy is. Jesus walks up to him, and he almost misses Jesus. In fact, if Jesus hadn't had spoken to him with power and authority, he would have missed him. But think of the hope in that. Part of the moral of this story is you don't have to be the brightest bulb or the sharpest pencil in the box to be able to meet Jesus and have him do miraculous, amazing things to you. Your ability to be reached by Jesus doesn't depend on your smartness or your intellect or your ability to catch on. It doesn't have to do with your spiritual sensitivity. It doesn't have to do with your morality. Jesus walks up to this man and he does something that is beyond this man's intellect and ability to understand. How dull and dense have you been about your own problems? How often have you been fixated on on the way that you wanted things to work out? And so fixated on the fact that they hadn't that you could almost miss Jesus saying to you, I'm not asking you if you, if you want your solution to what you, I don't, I'm not asking you if their solution to the problem is going to work. I'm standing here asking you only do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole by me? This man was dull and he was ungrateful. The story doesn't, again, doesn't paint this man in a complimentary light. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the story. Jesus speaks to him. He says, do you wish to be healed? He says, I don't have anybody to help me in the water. And Jesus simply says, get up. And he does. He takes up his mat And he walks away, this invalid for 30 years, 38 years, have been waiting beside this pool, this man who had no help. Jesus speaks to him and he heals him. But you know what we see about him? We don't see him respond the way some other people responded when Jesus healed them. We don't see them, we don't see them look at him and ask him like, who are you? Or to even say thanks. We don't see him glorify God and say, praise the Lord who has healed me. He's like, Hey guys, I can walk. 
Jesus, somehow, like the crowd presses in, Jesus steps back, he doesn't even know who heals him, and we don't see that he even asks, hey, who was that guy? Did anybody see where he went? There's supposed to be something about him that's amazing because I haven't been able to walk for 38 years. He just spoke to me and look at me now. No, it just passes away. He doesn't show any thankfulness. And in fact, when the authorities see him walking around with his mat, they say, on a, on a Saturday, they say, why are you carrying this mat on a Saturday? It's not lawful for you to do that. And he says, hey, some guy, doesn't take any responsibility for himself. He says, some guy over there made me do this. I was lame and he told me to pick up my mat and that's why I'm walking, go, go blame him. He's ungrateful. And not only that, but whenever he does find out who Jesus is, when he meets him again in the temple, he runs to the authorities afterwards and said, I found that guy that you're looking for that made me break the law on the Sabbath. It's Jesus. He's ungrateful. But isn't that part of the beauty? Jesus didn't come for the good. Jesus didn't come for the well. He didn't come for the cultured and the well-bred and the people who remember to tell him thank you. Jesus came for the miserable and the dull and the helpless. Are you an ungrateful sinner? He came for you. Are you an ungrateful, faltering Christian? He came for you. This man was a sinner. This is an important point. It's important for us to hear this and to cover it, but as we do, I need you to listen carefully because it can be easy to, to mess this up. You see, this man was a sinner. Jesus makes it clear that there's a connection for this man between his physical condition and his sin, his particular sin, this man's sin. We know that because at the end, when Jesus, after Jesus heals him, the crowd presses in, we imagine, Jesus steps back, he somehow arranges to see him again in the temple, Jesus does. And whenever he does, he tells him, go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, there's, that isn't always the case. So there's a connection between our particular sin and ailments or conditions. Jesus, in fact, points that out. There was a religious belief at the time that something, if some, you saw something bad happen to somebody, if somebody was lame, that means either they sinned or their parents sinned. Somebody got cancer, that means either they sinned or somebody around them sinned. There was a direct connection between somebody's sin and their malady. It's a religious belief. And that's what religion is. Religion says, I do, therefore I receive. I do this, therefore I should receive this from God. Religion says, as opposed to Christianity, the gospel, religion says, if I do good, God gives me good. If I do bad, God gives me bad. That's religion. The gospel says, I do bad, but yet God gives me himself. I'm a sinner, yet God does good for me. We think religion is what controls people's hearts and make them act moral, but it's not. It is whenever you realize in your soul, I am bad, yet Christ has given me himself. I have done poorly, 
yet Christ gives me his love and his grace and his goodness. So what you would have in that situation, if people believe there's a direct correlation between what you did and the malady that you had, then what you would have is people sort of like reading the tea leaves of other people all the time. Seeing, oh, look what happened to, to Susie over there. And then we would just kind of fill in the blanks of what she must have done in order to receive this illness or this problem. Now that may seem a little bit superstitious to you, but we still do it today. How many of us, when something bad happens or has happened to us, do we say, what did I do to deserve this? When something bad happens to a loved one, we, say, we pray, God, they've done so much good, they don't deserve this. We have in our thinking, if I do good, then I get this. If I do bad, I get this. Or on the flip side, if you see someone around you who does well in business or school or in life, we think, what did they do to deserve such success? What is good about them? What did they do? They must be better than me because they have received this goodness. And if you have that sort of mindset in yourself, you'll become bitter like this man. You'll be thinking life is inherently unfair they all have someone to help them in the pool. I can't afford someone to help me. I've been here for 38 years, yet other people beat me into the water. The problem with that, those lines of thinking is they come from a, a bad assumption. The assumption is that we as humans, our state is neutral or generally pretty good. That as humans, we're generally neutral or pretty good, and the decisions we make can move us either in the plus direction or the minus direction. But that's that religious kind of thinking. That's the wrong kind of thinking. I do bad, therefore I receive bad. I do good, therefore I receive good. God owes me good or bad according to how I have performed. We see Jesus on another occasion, he's talking about a tragedy that happened. A, a tower fell on a group of people and they were killed. It was a terrible tra tragedy. And he says, don't think, he says this in Luke 4, 13, 4 through 5. Those 18 on whom the, the, on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I don't have time to fully unpack what this is teaching, the doctrine. This is the doctrine of sin. But it, what it is is the teaching of the word of God that we were created to be good and to do good. We were created in the image of God. You were created. You were created to be in fellowship or relationship with the almighty creator God. But yet all of that was lost at the fall of Adam and all mankind. And now all that sin, that evil, that brokenness, that lameness of nature, if you will, in our heart has had far-reaching effects on every individual, family, society, and even nature itself. The peace, the wholeness that we're made to live in has been broken in our very souls. David said, in iniquity I was born. It has been passed down to you. It is your birthright as a human being. And there are terrible effects of sin on your body, your mind, and all of your relationships. On my body and my mind and all of my relationships. That fall has had terrible effects on all of us. But not only has it, has it been passed down to us, but as Paul says in Romans 3.23, all has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not just what you've inherited. 
Sin isn't just your birthright that has come down to you, this fallen state, but you and I continually and willfully have chosen to sin or to rebel against God. And in this scene, it's this scene that Jesus walks up to a microcosm of this problem. This man is hurt and he's helpless. Everyone around him is selfish. Selfish. I mean, can you imagine these young whippersnappers have come in. They've only been waiting for a few weeks, a few months. He's been waiting there for 38 years. Don't you think I, I should be the top of the pecking order? Let's form a line. Put me in the front. Let me get in next. But no, everybody's fighting over themselves to get in. Everybody there is hurt. Everybody is sick. Everybody is in, there is lame. And they're all fighting over themselves to get to what they think the cure for their problem is. But yet this man's helpless. And he's too consumed with his own problems to come to even comprehend or understand who stands before him. That's probably the saddest part of this account. This man is healed of his terrible infirmity here by the pool by Jesus. But his deepest problems go unaddressed. Let's just, before we move on, let's just talk about what does Jesus mean whenever he says that this man's ailment and his sin are connected? Again, let's be careful. Jesus doesn't tell us what the connection is. You notice that in the story? He tells him, go and sin no, go and sin no more, lest something worse should happen to you. But he doesn't say out loud to this man or to us what the problem with this man was. You know why? Because Jesus never tells you somebody else's story. It's between you and him. He never tells you somebody else's story. That's why it's dangerous for us to ever try to fill in the the blanks. This happened to that person because of this. We do not know, and we're in the same boat that they are. We don't know, and we can't understand why and how those connections occur. But instead of causing us fear and trying to put recrimination back on God, like, why did this bad thing happen? I can, I can say this. If God uses the terrible effects of sin, like he did in this man, suffering, pain, and sickness, to draw your attention to the true state of your sin and your helplessness without him, if he uses your affliction to cause you to look to him, then it can be the greatest blessing to you. Who knows how long this man would have continued in his sin if he hadn't been afflicted with this affliction? If Jesus hadn't come up to him and pointed it out to him, the problem... He hadn't called him to go and sin no more. I mean, you can see the effect of the sin on his heart and his mind. He's dull. He doesn't see Jesus. He, when he's standing there in his midst, he doesn't glorify God. He's blaming other people around him. But Jesus isn't done with this ungrateful sinner. He orchestrates another meeting to go to this man's heart. Let's look at who this Jesus is. What does this story tell us about Jesus? If this man that he comes up to is a a helpless, miserable, ungrateful sinner, who is this man that goes and finds and seeks out and heals people like that? Who is this this man, what what is he like that he would pick out from among the crowd this guy? You want to tell us about Jesus? Though this man was ungrateful and miserable and a sinner and helpless, and dull, 
It tells us that Jesus is compassionate and sovereign and authoritative and a merciful healer. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus moved with a tender heart. Why did he walk into that crowd? He doesn't tell us. Why did he walk into this crowd and pick out this particular man? Was it maybe because this man was the most hopeless one of the whole bit? Was it because this man had been waiting there for so long? Maybe, maybe before, Jesus only, remember, he's only like 30-some years old here. Maybe Jesus in heaven was watching this man whenever he was born saying, you know what, I'm going to meet this man. He's going to be waiting day after day, year after year, but I'm going to go and I'm going to meet this man and I'm going to show him a compassion that no one else will show him and, no, and he doesn't deserve himself. His own family doesn't seem to have enough compassion upon him to sit there beside the pool to make sure he makes it in there when the water is stirred, but I'll show up. Nobody around him will will let him cut to the front of the line because they've been waiting so long, but I'll show up. This man doesn't seem to be a very nice man to be around, but I'll show up and I'll show him compassion that he has not earned and he does not deserve because I have a tender heart for those who are hurting, for those who are far away. I have a tender heart for the wandering sheep. I will leave the 99 and find the one that willfully ran away and is lost, the one who is willful, hard-headed and hard-hearted. I will come after him and I will bring him to myself for I'm the compassionate one. That's who Jesus is. He's compassionate, but not only is he compassionate, he is sovereign. Jesus, Jesus picks this man out from all the others and we aren't told why. Why did he pick this guy? We aren't told that he stayed and healed anybody else who was waiting around that pool. Why did he heal, heal this guy and just this one guy? Why did he do it? We could get caught up on why he chose this man and left the others. But here's what I know. He is sovereign and he is good. He is sovereign and he does what he likes and he is good and all that he does is good. He works from manifold or multi-sided wisdom. He sees things and understands things and works in things in ways that we don't understand. Who knows how he was working the lives of the other people sitting around that pool, but the way he worked in this man is he came and sovereignly picked him out and said, I am going to show compassion upon you. Because he is sovereign, This is the great lesson from here. Because he is sovereign, he can come, he can come and offer health and mercy and life to those who don't deserve it. Those who are lost causes in every other way. His sovereignty is hope for us. The Apostle Paul described himself, I am the foremost or the chief of sinners. And he says, Christ saved me so that he could show you that he can save you even though you are far away. What have you done? Who are you? Even the darkest, the vilest, the most hated, the most hateful man or woman can be the recipient of his sovereign mercy. Not dependent at all, independent of who you are and what you've done. Independent of your track record. You can have his shadow pass over you just like it passed over this man. Do you hear his voice asking you even today? Just as clearly as it asked that man, as he heard it in his ears sitting beside that pool of Bethesda, can you hear his voice reaching out to you and asking you today, do you desire to be well? Do you desire to be made whole? Do you want to be cleansed? 
You might say, oh, but I don't have this. I don't know how to do this. I've tried before and I've never been able to do it. I'm not sure I have what it takes. Do you hear the sovereign one calling out to you? I'm not asking you about that. I'm not asking about you and your wherewithal. I'm not asking you about your intellect or your ability. I'm just saying, do you desire to be well because wellness and wholeness and health rely, lies within me and me solely and I can sovereignly and authoritatively speak to you and heal you. You say, I haven't responded well. I've heard his word, but I've turned away. I shrank back. That time is over. That time has passed. That phase of my life is gone. My heart is too hard now. You don't know all the things that I've done. Look at that man. Look at this man. In his miserableness, in his helplessness, in his ungratefulness. He turned on Jesus. He blamed Jesus for healing him. He ratted him out to the authorities, yet Jesus, knowing all of that, showed up and showed his sovereign mercy upon him. He didn't look on this man's track record. He didn't look on his worthiness or his character. He didn't even look at this man's faith. He chose the hardest, dullest one of the bunch, and he took the initiative, and he healed him. What has he done for you? Look at what he has sovereignly done for you. Look at the manger. Look at the cross. Look at his life. Look at the tomb. Look at your life. Look at how he has brought you to this moment, to this day, how he has sustained you and kept you and brought you sovereignly to this moment. Even if you feel I faltered, I limped into this place today, yet he has held you and he has kept you. He is sovereign to hold you and to keep you. If you were to take stock of it all right now, how has his sovereignty reached out to you? Not only is he sovereign, though, he's authoritative. Look at the words of Jesus. He says, do you desire to be made well? Do you desire to be healed? Do you want to be healed? This man's response is dull in return. And all he says is he tells him to get up. And those words open the man's ears, heal his body, and even commands him to rise, gives him the faith and the ability to stand up when he had no ability before. Authoritative to the point, it's his authoritative word that goes out to this man. And in those words were contained life and power to not only falter up, but to rise and to walk. 38 years he hasn't walked. His body is atrophied. His body doesn't remember how to walk, but Christ remembers. He gives him faith and a supernatural ability, and inside his words are life and power and the ability for complete and utter wholeness to enter and course inside his body. He must have imparted himself, even his words imparted some sort of faith inside him that allowed him the ability to stand up and to walk. Whenever he speaks to him, just as he spoke to Lazarus' dead body, just as he can speak to you and speak life and call you to himself today, inside those words are the power and the ability and life to enable you to come, to enable you to change, to give you the want and the will and the power to come to him. He is fully authoritative. He's not bound here by Sabbath conventions. He doesn't care that it's Saturday. He says, I'm the creator of the Sabbath. I am working, he says, as we sang earlier. And he says he will reach out to those who have need. I won't be bound by anything because nothing is impossible to God. He has all authority and power to help you. How are you responding to his authoritative word to you today?
Jesus is compassionate. He's authoritative. He's merciful and sovereign. This man didn't deserve this kind of attention from Jesus. But Jesus performs this miracle, I believe, almost just to prove that he's merciful. If he would do it for this man, what will he do for you? How will he help you? How will he keep you? How will he forgive you? How will he carry you through to the end? Why won't you humble yourself and come to him today? Why won't you believe or admit your need to him and stop pretending? Why would you pretend to have it all together when the one who is authoritative and sovereign and compassionate and merciful is standing with you, beside you, and within you today, calling you to himself? Call upon his mercy. Bank on it. Jesus is the healer. I love this quote by C.K. Barrett. This is the 38 years proved the gravity of the disease. So the carrying of the bed and the walking proved the completeness of the cure. Do you see here that Jesus alone is the healer? You may find help or relief from other places. But he alone is the healer who needs no help, needs no props, needs no prescription, needs no surgery. He himself is the true healer because he is wholeness and health. Do you believe it? Do you live like that? Believer, do you live like that? Or do you let the enemy in your own mind confound you and depress you day after day? When you see your faltering steps, you see how you continue to sin, you see that continual habit that plagues you, you see how weak you are, you see how marred you are, you see how messed up you were by your family or by this thing in the past, when you see how you can't seem to pull yourself together and be what you know that you need to be, yet do you let that be more true to you than the fact that Jesus, the authoritative, sovereign, compassionate, merciful, authoritative healer says, I will be your God and you will be my people. My birth, my death, and my resurrection are the pledges that I'm committed to you. I've placed my spirit within you. I've guided your life to this moment. Which will you believe more? The whisper of the enemy, your track record, or the one who stood before this man who was dull and dense, a sinner, ungrateful, and yet Jesus spoke life to him. If you're here this morning and Jesus has not spoken that life to you, that you've been born again from above, it doesn't happen by checking a box or walking forward. It happens by God's sovereign work in your life, in your heart. When you hear his call to say, do you want to be healed? Come to me. And you suddenly sense within your heart the faith and the ability to come to him. If he's calling you today, don't be like this man. Come to him as Savior and Lord. Believer, 
The truth of who Jesus is for you and in you is more real than your track record, what you did yesterday, this morning, or will do tomorrow. And that, you understanding and realizing that power and that love and banking yourself upon him, that is actually the key to true repentance. To go and sin no more, lest something worse befall you. A grateful heart for God's undeserving love. That's what we celebrate every week when we celebrate communion. God's undeserving love, his broken body, his shed blood to cover us, his broken body to heal us, in our assurance that we will be fully made whole one day. I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come forward. We're going to have two stations on either side as we open up for communion. If you're a believer in Christ today, it's open for you to come and take the body and the blood of Christ, the wafer and the juice, take it back to your seat, then Tad will come forward and lead us in communion afterwards. If you're not a Christian today, instead of participating in communion, maybe at your, at your chair while we sing, maybe just pray. Maybe say, I want somebody, I need somebody to pray with me. Grab someone beside you or come up and grab me in the front. I'd be happy to pray with you. Father, I thank you that you have given us Christ, we who are undeserving, that he is compassionate, merciful, authoritative, and sovereign, that he has the desire and the ability to make us whole. Lord, we thank you that he is ours. And we are his. Lord, assure your people of that today. And draw anyone who is here who is not assured of that for themselves to confess you as Lord and experience the new birth. We pray this in the name of Christ.